0: This episode of Job Shadowing HE is kindly sponsored by Dixon Walter. Dixon Walter is a search and selection firm devoted to the appointment of outstanding leaders within higher education. Since 2015, they have been delivering successful appointments across the full spectrum of senior professional services and academic leadership positions throughout the UK and across all mission groups. Hallmarks of their service include the supportive and insight driven approach leading to innovative, diverse and inspirational appointments that regularly exceed the expectations of both clients and candidates. Their dedicated team of higher education experts combine a broad range of significant senior recruitment expertise along with a direct lived experience at the senior level from within HE. They therefore fully embrace the societal impacts of the sector and the responsibility of those leaders who operate within it. (music) I'm Susanna Marsden and welcome to Job Shadowing HE, the podcast that delves into the roles of people working in higher education. Each episode hears from guests about what's involved in their role, the career path that led to it and tips on how to get in and get on in these jobs. My guest in this episode is Josh Gulrajani, Director of Planning, Performance and Student Statutory Returns at Aston University. The planning function of an HEI has traditionally been very much behind the scenes, but it's now playing a far more prominent role in enabling institutions to create and implement plans to support institutional success. In talking with Josh, I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by co-host David Marks, a higher education consultant who specialises in planning, data, analytics, governance and policy. (music) Welcome, Josh, as today's guest, and welcome to, to my co-host, David Marks. Before the two of you get into the depths of the world of higher education planning, I'm going to start our conversation with a question to Josh about your overall role. You started your post at Aston University in July 2023 as Director of Planning, Performance and Student Statutory Returns. There's quite a lot packed into those words. Can you tell us more about what's involved?
1: Yeah, of course, and it it is a very long job title. So most higher education institutions have a planning function, Um, although its name and its remit do vary quite a bit from university to university and provider to provider. Um, So commonly my role is likely to oversee some sort of strategic planning cycle. Um, So one of the processes that the university uses to turn its strategy into something more operational and tangible in the way of objectives and deliverables. Um, And this cycle also tends to look at the resources that are going to be delivered. Uh, Directors of planning are also likely to oversee the production of lots of forecasts and numbers uh, that look into the future. So thinking about the people that we employ, the students that we teach and the research and innovation activity that we undertake or indeed the money that all of that results in at the end. Um, And then finally, planning departments usually have some responsibility for performance monitoring, so how well the university is doing. Um, It's important to say, I think, that planning teams aren't responsible for the university's performing well. That's that's everyone's job. Um, Just providing that objective reporting function to help with informing and targeting what the university might focus on next. Interestingly, Aston has put responsibility for statutory returns, as you said, in my brief as well. But this feels less common. I've seen models where this sits in academic registries or or all sorts of other teams. But that means I look after all of the data that we send to places like the Higher Education Statistics Agency, JISC and the Office for Students. Um, I also think it's useful to say at this point that Directors of Planning have a close working relationship with most of the university senior leadership teams. So in my instance, Aston, I report to the deputy vice chancellor. But in the past, I've reported to pro vice chancellors, finance directors, or indeed the vice chancellor themselves. So it's really quite broad and there's a big breadth to the role.
0: So let's look back at your career journey so far. In in just reading your LinkedIn profile, it's clear that you've achieved a huge amount in a really short space of time. From being Students' Union Sabbatical Officer, Vice President Education, at the University of Essex in 2016-17, through to becoming a university director in 2023. And your pathway also looks quite portfolio-based, combining roles in institutions alongside sort of extracurricular work, I suppose, with the Quality Assurance Agency and the Office for Students. Take us through those experiences you've had and tell us more about the connections.
1: My first real exposure, I suppose, to higher education professional services was in 2014-15 when I was an undergraduate. um, And my university at the time went through the Quality Assurance Agency's higher education review, the old sort of review method for how a university is performing. Um, And I was asked to sit on the student panel for that. And I just found the whole thing fascinating. It was something I'd never even known existed before. And that then sort of led me to running for vice president in education, as you said. Um, The VP education role was always sort of seen as the non-fun one, I think, at the time. Uh, Lots of meetings, so many papers. But I really loved it because it it helped me to start building the jigsaw of how a university slots together and how the different bits of an organisation, I suppose, work with each other and are interconnected. Um, It was then also while I was a sabbatical officer that I started getting involved, as you say, in some national level work. So I worked with the Teaching Excellence Framework in its first year, which was my first year as a sabbatical officer. Um, And that ended up turning into a three-year sort of side hustle or side project for me, if you like. Um, It was probably the biggest career-defining moment for me because it was so broad and varied in its role, but also the providers that we were responsible for assessing covered such a breadth of of tertiary education, I suppose, that um, I'd never seen before. So I just found it really very interesting. And it taught me quite a lot about what goes on in UK higher education. Um, I then moved on to King's College, where I worked in a quality assurance and student experience role. And I think by this point, I'd really decided that I enjoyed working in universities but I also wanted to broaden the type of university that I'd worked in. So for me, this was my kind of Russell Group research intensive stint. Um, It's also really at King's that I discovered a love for data um, and how universities and and providers on the whole can use data and evidence to drive change for students and staff and for the university. Um, And then I moved down to Bath Spa University where I was for just under five years. Where again, it's a very different type of university from anything that I'd been involved with in the past. So there was something new in that for me. But it was that was an entirely data and evidence based role, and and how we use evidence and insights to ultimately make enhancements to what the student offer was. Um, It also meant being at a smaller university that I was able to get involved in other pieces of work. So over time, my role sort of morphed into a strategic planning and data role. And then the senior role that I I ultimately had there before I left covering planning and data. I think bringing all of this together, I was reflecting on this in the past few weeks, Susanna, I think some common themes become clear to me that the joining of the dots and the jigsaw puzzle building that I've spoken about already, being able to look across the whole and understand how things talk to each other and work with each other. I really like to work in a way where I don't just understand what I do, but the why, the how it impacts others and who else relies on what I do. And I think planning roles really allow you to do that. I also think there's a a strong thread of talking to a lot of people and um, you've probably already worked out I'm quite a talker so a role or a space where I wasn't able to be out there talking to lots of people and working at all different levels I, I don't think would work for me um, and I've I've had to hone as part of that stakeholder engagement piece an ability to influence to negotiate and to be diplomatic and understanding And I think that's come through a lot stronger in my more recent roles. But I don't think anyone ever masters these skills, but they're really important to recognise in yourself and develop as you go through your career.
0: And you mentioned in what you just said there about your experience on the TEF panels um, and that being sort of a pivotal or career defining moment for you. And I, I guess there was probably quite a lot of negotiation and influencing involved in that role. But when you started being part of those panels, was it a comfortable environment for you? Um,
1: I think by the end of the three years, absolutely, it was it was a comfortable environment, and and absolutely, we'd we'd all become sort of experts in that which we were there to do. But I'd be absolutely lying if I didn't say it was terrifying to start. Um, there was over a hundred assessors in the first year of the TEF, and some of them were sabbatical officers and students and graduates, but you also had a huge number of university executive staff who had you know combined centuries of experience in higher education management but each individually had had years and decades behind them so it was that was super daunting. I've I've always though been a strong believer of trying new things and also particularly not saying no just because something feels uncomfortable or scary because they're usually the opportunities that you learn the most from whether that's in a work capacity or indeed learn the most about yourself. Um, The other thing that massively came out of my time on the TEF was about recognising your expertise, as I I just mentioned. I think recognising over the three years why I was around that table and why the other students were around that table, I think really helped us to then bring our opinion and our views to bear on the decisions that we took on the TEF. And I remember standing up in front of all of the student assessors in my final year when I was deputy chair of the the subject pilot. And I was giving a speech on on how they could best get the most out of their experience and role on the TEF. And I said something along the lines of the best people to talk to about the lived experience of students are students. Um, Now, I personally didn't think that was particularly controversial. But the point of that was to remind other students that they were experts. It was a different thing to the academics around them, but they were experts, too. Um, I think... Just as a final point on this, what what Tef really did for me was take me out of my comfort zone, but really has instilled in me a a belief that I pass on to everybody that is, try something outside of your comfort zone. And and I suspect we'll come back to this a little bit later on, but trying something new and trying something, even if it doesn't feel like an easy or comfortable decision, has really worked quite well for me. And I, I encourage that to everybody.
0: I'm going to bring in David here as as my co-host today at this point for a bit of reflection. I mean, Josh has just talked there about that impact of the wider experiences on his own professional development. Picking up on that, how important do you think it is more generally for colleagues working in planning to get involved in some broader activities?
2: Oh, massively so. I'd say Josh's experience may not reflect a typical planner's route, if such a thing even exists. But there are so many ways to get involved to improve yours and the team's contribution. Firstly, I would say don't underestimate what you can learn from the colleagues around you and extend your network within your own university. Within university, you can also observe or join a working group or committee and get involved in change programmes. They're happening in every institution at the moment. There's also HESPA, the Strategic Planners Association, or AHEP, the Association of Higher Education Professionals, uh, formerly the AUA, and organisations like JISC. I mean, there's training, special interest groups, conferences, and then also that potential for national-facing activity. And then I'd also say that you can also find some really interesting stuff out there. In my own experience, I was incredibly lucky to spend a week at the University of Javascript in Finland. It was an Erasmus scheme. Uh, It provided an opportunity to understand how strategy was implemented and, and data analysed in universities, not just in Finland and the UK, but across Europe. The last thing I would say, though, is build a network and don't be afraid to ask other universities for help. You can go and visit them. And I would say that generally us planners are a friendly bunch. So learn from each other. So, Josh. At the core of the planning function is the creation and implementation of an institution's strategic plan, and perhaps that need to balance those longer-term strategic aims with the shorter-term focus. I know that we probably both say that student number planning is central to this. Um, you've mentioned planners do a lot of forecasts, but in your director's role, what are the main things you're doing to support your institution with that? <laughs> So I I think you'll
1: know, David, that if you mention student number planning to any planner, particularly at certain points in the year, and it is usually early on in in the calendar year, so about now, um, you'll get nothing short of an essay as a response, so I won't do that. For me, student numbers planning has always been about taking what we know about our current students, what we know about the pipeline of students, as it were, so those coming through in future years, and what we know is going on externally in in sort of the big wide world and putting all of that together with some really clever calculations and some jiggery-pokery in the background and some assumptions then on top, which broadly is a fancy word for educated guesses. And then with some level of accuracy, trying to forecast what the student population might look like going into the future. Um, So my role in thinking about how a director of planning Plays their part in that is effectively to bring together the various teams and the various people that have expertise that's useful to input to that exercise. So colleagues in student recruitment and admissions being the subject matter experts on that pipeline, students in registry and other student lifecycle departments that think about what our current student population are like and what they're doing. Um, and then you've the the really important point about working with those responsible for teaching and learning delivery on the ground so at Aston it's the colleges but whether that's your faculties or departments or schools the people that really understand what the educational journey looks like for those learners once they're here Um, and my role in that is about bringing all of that information and intelligence together and trying to tell a bit of a story about what forecasting and what student numbers might look like going into the future, and then working closely with with other departments, so teams like finance and human resources departments, to work out what flows out of that. So the financials or the staffing needs that an institution has based on the students that it expects to teach in the future. Um, Now, as, as you will have already picked up, I'm an absolute data geek. And, and I think most planners are at the moment. So this is our chance to get into the nitty gritty of spreadsheets and student continuation and attrition. Um, but I, I think something that's lived with me for certainly a few years, I remember a senior leader once saying to me that forecasting will always be more art than science. And so as much as you've got all of that intelligence and that bringing of different jigsaw pieces together, there's always going to be an element of guesswork or or educated assumptions, and I think we, we'd all be
2: wise to remember that. Uh, one thing I picked up on there is uh, your use of the term data geek, and I'm really pleased that you were the first one to say it. Uh, I certainly fit in that category too. But you, you also mentioned the work involves assumptions and educated guesses. You can aim to plan, but curveballs are always inevitable. And I'm just trying to think of some of the big ones I've experienced, and they include the introduction of student number controls and then their subsequent removal. There's been the rise and fall of applicant interest in specific subjects and, of course, the pandemic. Does that resonate and what might we see in the future? I absolutely
1: agree with your point that there are curveballs and it's impossible to see everything that's coming. I, I remember specifically accepting my first role in strategic planning in December 2019. And I I think everyone then knows what came next. So going through my first strategic planning cycle entirely virtually, trying to look one, two, three years into the future when people were working one, two, three weeks into the future was really kind of thrown in at the deep end with no armbands on. But I think this comes back to what Susanna said at the very start about planning taking more of a prominent role. The fact that at the same time as it's become very much harder to plan it's also becoming much more critical for providers to plan recognizing the external environment that we're that we're acting in at the moment um it would be remiss not to mention things like recent changes to student visas something that i know will have sent strategic planners across the country digging right back into their student number plans to work out what might the impact of that be how do i go back and present to my leaders what we did capture as an assumption and what we now might be revising. And then I think there are some fundamental changes that have been spoken about for a little while, things like the lifelong learning entitlement, which I think will fundamentally shift how we think about tertiary education and for the better, in in my opinion. But as planners, we're used to working on a one, three or four year educational model of of undergraduates or, or postgraduate degrees. And I think this will fundamentally change how we as planners have to behave but also the accuracy with which we can plan recognising that a more agile and flexible system for learners isn't necessarily an easy business model
2: to do forecasting with. Oh I totally agree and I think that the planning community has lots to think about to adapt to this but thinking about planning more generally the, the role of a planner is not just about numbers is it? What about research, people, civic and sustainability agendas? How do you approach this in your role at Aston? I think, firstly, it's important to say that those, those other bits, he
1: says, making fake rabbit ears, are increasingly becoming a core part of organisations and universities, right? They're, and they all interact with each other in a multitude of ways, which I think is really important to remember, whichever part of planning you focus on at certain points in the year, so coming back to that coordination point that I think I made a little bit earlier and, and being that glue that binds together a lot of different planning streams, I've always worked very closely to a workforce planning stream as an example, which is the people element that you referenced there. What number of staff what might we need in the future? Looking at things like student staff ratios, thinking about our PGR population and how that's informed by our staff community of research active academics. All of this meshes together with knowledge of the operations of what's going on in the organisation, but it also then drives the financials and the student numbers. So you can start to see it all coming together. Um, and the second you then start thinking about the people in the workforce, we then need to think about the space that our staff are going to use to work in. So the estates planning piece comes into this. and And how do we Build in space that allows our staff to teach and learners to learn effectively and undertake their research and us to engage with the local organisations that are really important to us as a university. So in my time as a planning lead, I've been able to learn a lot about how we do workforce and people planning, but also how we do things like estates planning and how business requirements in one area of the business fundamentally drive Massive and large scale other pieces of work around things like buildings and rooms.
2: We've spoken a lot about strategic planning, performance data, and that institutional glue. But would you say the job is always
1: strategic? I think in the planning space, it's really important to try and remain strategic wherever you can. This this role fundamentally has to be about the medium and long-term direction and propulsion of the universities that we work in. So if, if we get too bogged down in, in even one year or two year thinking, I think we end up stifling that kind of horizon scanning, blue sky thinking, really looking far ahead when a number of other staff at, at this sort of level are having to focus in a slightly more shorter time frame. I think our roles have always been, and will continue to be about the detail. And so there's an element of getting into the, the sort of real detail of what's going on, particularly around the forecasting, but I, I've spoken about that quite a lot. I think a number of other planning directors that I've seen that have been really successful in their roles are able to really understand operationally how a lot of other parts of the university works. And I think whether that's because they've come up through working in a broad range of areas, or more often than not, it's because they do a lot of that stakeholder engagement and going out and talking to other teams and trying to understand what it is that they do. This allows me, in in my role, to think about where the interactions are between a planning team and, for example, an academic quality team, but also do some of that really rich thinking about the future, about where the interactions might be in the future. And I can then really offer something as a team that not only helps my team or helps the senior leaders in the university, but can also help other departments. But I think coming back to your question, there's an element of that that will always be operational. It's about thinking about the tasks and the activities that different teams do. Um, In my specific case, uh, having statutory returns in my brief makes me immediately less strategic in what I'm doing, because frankly, it's so important that we get it right. I'm both still relatively new to Aston University, but also the whole HESA student returns, statutory returns landscape is is ever changing. It's really important in, in my opinion and in my role that I do remain close to the operations in that space just to make sure that we get it right, we get it right first time. So answering your question, I suppose it's really important we try to remain strategic, but actually if we don't
2: get involved in a lot of the operations, we won't be able to do our jobs completely. You've mentioned the scope of planning teams can be quite wide reaching, but we wouldn't be able to get away with not mentioning data futures. Can you say a bit about the challenges you and the sector has faced, the impact it has had on colleagues and what you've seen this holds for those colleagues going forward?
1: Yeah, um, I wanted to see how far into this podcast we could make it before we said the words data futures. So we've we've done pretty well so far, I think. I think it's worth setting a little bit of context here for those listeners either who don't work in this area or indeed don't work in higher education at all. Um, We have as a university a regulatory requirement to send whole rafts of data about our business, our learners, our staff to a variety of organisations and data futures is the largest change that we've gone through to this process in recent times, and it was fundamentally about trying to get the data that we share about our learners, about our students, to be more timely, more detailed, and and therefore more useful to the people who use it. What I think is fair to say is that the past 18 to 24 months has been really hard. I think for all teams in all universities, the past 18 to 24 months hasn't been a walk in the park. But for colleagues in statutory returns, either in a provider or indeed in one of these regulatory bodies, this has been a really difficult time. Um, for, For those that weren't involved, we've had lots of moving deadlines, lots of last minute changes, lots of stress being added on that I think some in the sector considered unnecessary. We've had moving goalposts, systems that haven't been able to keep up, providers desperately trying to keep up, while in reality, a number of providers This was an area that's historically been quite hidden in the background and quite misunderstood. Now, in my mind, being sort of pragmatic but also quite optimistic about it, a lot of this was teething problems and I think we should have expected a lot of this going through a major change programme, but ultimately that doesn't change the impact that it's had on our people. I wanted to flag, I suppose, it's particularly bad, and you know it's bad, when a professional body feels that it has to send out a welfare email to staff that were working in this area. And 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 I do have to give absolute kudos to the team at the Strategic Planners Association, because they, they really stepped up and recognised that staff were really struggling and sent out that kind of welfare check on people and, and that extension of, we're here to help and support. But let's not sugarcoat where we are now. There are some really good people that we've had in our providers and in our sector bodies who've gone through this and decided that this industry isn't worth it anymore. And so they've left really good people. So we've we've lost decades of institutional and sector level knowledge because they've decided that this isn't worth it. And so they're going on to do something else. So that all brings me to thinking about not just from the individual's perspective, how sad is it that we've lost people that have lost that much joy in what they do, that they feel it's necessary to change their career. But also how much sector knowledge and, and institutional specific knowledge have we lost? And how are we as a sector going to continue to strive to improve data quality and ag- agility in how we work with data when there's been a much higher level of staff turnover and a much lower level of staff wellbeing? And um, I don't profess to have the answers as to how we square that circle that's part of my current role is to think about in the coming months and years not only how do we make sure that this business critical activity gets done but how do we do it in a way that allows my people and my team to thrive and i think that's a really important piece i thank you for flagging it
0: you've just been talking there josh about data futures and the pressures that there have been on colleagues and Higher education can be a challenging sector to work in, as you say, with the data futures, but also more broadly as well with the very negative media and current government narrative about higher education. With that backdrop in mind, what continues to motivate you to work in the sector?
1: I've always been driven by the idea of making a difference, making a change in whatever way I can. Um, I know that sounds quite fluffy, but I think higher education is a space that really allows that sort of mentality and that sort of mindset to thrive. Um, I've always liked to think that in my role and the spaces that I've occupied, if I can focus on making a difference and a positive change, whether that's to my team and my staff or the organisation as a whole, or indeed the students that we serve, then I can't be going too wrong and, and I'm doing a good thing. The, the other massive motivation is the friendliness and collegiality of everyone else that works in higher education and um, our professional community is amazing it really is a community in act and not just name i know that's quite a buzzword but i really feel that um, there's been a lot of people who've provided me with that advice and, and guidance throughout my time in the sector always with my best interests at heart and so a lot of time and generosity has been given to me and so me part of my motivation for staying in higher education is the hope that I can pass that on and continue to pass on my time through advice and guidance to the next generation of staff in the sector too. And and so the cycle continues.
0: And reflecting on what you said earlier and and finishing up our conversation today, your career path so far is unique and and seems to have been a combination of your sheer hard work, taking opportunities and, and I guess a sprinkling of being in the right place at the right time. Planning is gonna remain central to the success of higher education institutions. And listening to what you've said today, being the director of planning seems like a really special place to be. What advice would you give to aspiring directors of planning?
1: Firstly, I think if you're working in a university or a higher education provider and you don't work in planning right now, um, reach out to your planning teams to try and find out more about what they do, what interactions your role and your team currently have with them. and what interactions you might be able to have with them going forward. Universities love a working group. They love a task and finish group, as David's already mentioned earlier on. And so there should be plenty of opportunities for you to get involved in something in the strategic planning space if you think it's something that you'd be interested in. I'd also say, as as was mentioned earlier, engaging with your wider community. So use your professional bodies. The Association of HE Professionals and the Strategic Planners Association are really good places to start. But also think about reaching out to your equivalents at other universities. Utilise some of the other types of networks that you might have within your own university. So a network for particular professional staff or an equality and diversity network. They're ways of getting out and, and meeting and talking to other people. And then finally, think outside of the box a little bit. I think a lot of what I've done in the past doesn't feel like it's aligned with a a strategy and planning sort of career path but it's all provided me with a rich experience and I've always walked away having learned something Um, and I think that has to be the point of education so I'd say think outside of the box try something new see how far you can get.
0: Couldn't agree more Josh that's a great place to end it's been really good spending time with you today thank you for letting me shadow you And thank you also to the fantastic David Marks for being my co-host and covering all things HE planning.
2: Thank you for listening to Job Shadowing HE. The podcast was written and presented by Susanna Marsden and David Marks. Audio production and music by me, Rodri Marsden. More information about this podcast and previous episodes can be found at jobshadowinghe.podbean.com.